Hey, Matt Tuckman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Emily Dupree. With us today is Robert May, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Linguistics at the University of California, Davis. And he is here to discuss pejorative expressions. Robert May, welcome. Thank you. So we thought it would be wise to begin, before we started talking about the substance of your view, begin first with just... um, Maybe you can comment on the difficulties with writing about pejorative expressions to begin with, whether we use the expressions in our work or if we refer to them in some sort of opaque way, um, and where you stand on this and why. Okay. Uh, Well, first of all, I hope that we never use these words to defer to a philosophical distinction. We want to be careful to distinguish between use and mention, and all of our usage in uh, philosophical work or discussion would be with respect to just mentioning these words and talking about them, their characteristics, their meanings, the way that they could be used as opposed to using them. So there is a general proviso that we are being respectful of a use-mentioned distinction. Um, when I started working on this, I did sort of think a bit about what I felt about whether the words should be mentioned or some euphemism should be employed. And I came to the decision in part for uh, personal reasons and in part because of you know, reasons of my point of view that I don't think euphemisms really do much. I mean, we know it. Just if I say a euphemism, it doesn't mean that sort of you're not thinking that word in a sense. So I don't think it's, there's really any point to doing the euphemisms. I do tend and I try to uh, follow the following rule, which my co-author on this paper we're discussing, Chris Hamm, does as well is to use ones which are self-applying. So I tend to use kike, and he uses chink. So I've I've now done it. I've now, these words have come out of my mouth. Uh, Having said that, let me be very clear. I mean, part of what we're going to talk about is when people do use these words, what the significance of that use is in terms of what their personal attitudes are, their states of mind, their psychology, and so on. But it is clear that for some people even those who are, you know, understand the context in which the words are being employed, just those sounds they find distasteful, offensive, and so on. I think that's something which I understand, but I think you know, it's part of their personal issues about their own personal life experiences. Of course, one has to always be very careful if you're going to these sounds are going to kind of come out of your mouth. You have to be careful that people may, un- may misunderstand the context. Although I do think people are uh, rather more understanding of sort of philosophical discussion, even sort of you know, cocktail lounge philosophical discussion than we let on. So I think that given we understand our context in which we're using these, and given that we are understanding that these words being mentioned are not in any way reflective of the attitudes or beliefs of the other. I think that it's just appropriate to uh, just, you know, employ the words rather than speaking euphemistically, which leads to a point of view which we'll probably talk about called silentism and whether silentism is sort of 
a reasonable way to deal with the relationship between language, language use, and the attitudes that underlie language use. So I'll maybe we'll get to that topic a little later. Okay, well, uh, I'm in the somewhat unfortunate position of belonging to neither of the groups you just mentioned, but uh, I guess I'll have to go ahead and use the term anyway. So to take your example, kike, what does the word kike mean on your view? What the word kike means is I can give by the following locution. Since kike is a concept, it would be the concept of something like X ought to be the target of negative moral evaluation all because of being a Jew. So the idea is that words, pejorative words like kike, have a content which has at least two or three parameters. One is a parameter that there is a moral ought involved in its meaning. The second is an evaluation, and it's a negative moral evaluation. And thirdly, it's directed towards some group. So one could perhaps find a a more appealing locution, but the way I tend to think about it is that what a word like kike means, or if we are to use some philosophical jargon, what it senses, it is something like X ought to be the target of negative moral evaluation all because of being a Jew or African-American or gay. I mean, whatever it happens to be that that group designator is. So I think what's important, and maybe we'll come back to this later, is that I take it that these words, their meanings have moral content and that they contribute that meaning to the overall meaning of the sentences in which they occur, and hence those sentences also have moral content. So in this view, it's what is known as a a view of moral realism, that this content will be content that is truth-conditionally significant. And to clarify about the term truth-conditionally, what we mean when we say something is truth-conditionally significant is something like, relevant to the literal meaning of the expression we're talking about. Yeah, so I take it that there'll be cases in which, take some sentence which contains the word Jew, it could be true, and if you take the same sentence and just substitute kike for Jew, it could be false. So when we try to say whether a given sentence is true that contains one of these words, that there is moral content, there's a moral evaluative dimension to saying whether it is true or false. So are these expressions that target particular groups of people, maybe racial groups, ethnic groups, um, people with certain sexual orientations or genders, are these the only expressions in our language that are morally charged? Are they unique in this respect, or is there something unique about the way they're morally charged? Oh, I think there's all sorts of words in our language that are morally charged. Um, And, you know, we can go to the classic discussions of good and bad. I mean, whether those have moral content or not. But these, I think, the whole point about sort of the exercise that, we're, that my co-author and I, Chris Hom, have undertaken is to try and stake out a particular semantic space which these words occupy. So, yeah, so there is a particular type of meaning that would go along with pejoratives. And it's the one which I gave a moment ago as X ought to be the target of negative moral evaluation all because of being a member of a certain group. Now, I mean, one of the things you said, I, I think you were implying correct me if I'm wrong, is an issue about what's the notion of being a group here. And I think there's an interesting discussion to be had about what constitutes a group. And maybe we'll come back to that in a moment. 
So in saying that a sentence with a group designator versus the associated pejorative have differing truth values, um, what explains the difference in truth value? Okay. If we have a sentence which contains a pejorative word, that word has this meaning, and that meaning presumably determines some reference. So if we take it to mean X ought to be the target of negative moral evaluation all because of being a Jew, that concept has a null extension. There's nobody who ought to be the target of negative moral evaluation just because they belong to a group. That's just not something which is morally evaluable. So those terms, the pejorative, the classic, or pejorative terms in general, like kike, nigger, queer, whatever they might be, there's no one who are those such things. So we have a view which is called the view of moral innocence. And the view of moral innocence is the view that it's just not part of the world that there are such things as kikes, niggers, chinks, and so on. These things don't exist. There are Jews, there are African Americans, there are Chinese people, and so on. But there are no such things as kikes. And it's a claim, essentially a metaphysical claim, about the sorts of things there are. So oddly enough, I mean, a sort of a personal anecdote, I can actually very much remember when I was a small lad, my mother saying to me, I think when I first came upon the term kike, my mother saying to me, there are no such things, expressing a a sort of folk metaphysical theory. And she was very clear, she wasn't telling me there are no such people that are called kikes. People are called kikes all the time. But that's different from whether there are such things. And the claim of moral innocence is not that there aren't, you know, people aren't called kikes all the time, but that there are no such things as kikes. So that, we argue, follows from the idea that given this meaning of a word like kike that I've given as X ought to be the target of negative moral evaluation all because of being a Jew, that there's a general a priori moral principle that no one ought to be so targeted for negative moral evaluation. So a term like kike has what we call a null extension. There is no such people. So if we had a sentence like, there are no kikes, that would be a true sentence. It would simply assert the null extensionality thesis, as opposed to there are kikes, which is false. If you use Jew instead, it would be the opposite. There are no Jews uh, would be contingently false, but there are Jews would be equally contingently true. So part of what we tried to do in looking at these topics was to set up what we take to be the central cases which are focusing on the conceptual relations between pairs of terms like Jew and kike. There's a classic theory, what's known as theory of generalized quantifiers, which sets up very certain fundamental relationships which hold between concepts. So if we have something like all men are mortal, it sets up a relationship between the concept of being a man and the concept of being mortal and says there's a certain relationship which holds between them, that is, the men are included among the mortals. So if we look at these kinds of cases where we take these terms that we're trying to compare, we find we get sentences like, no Jews are kikes, which comes out as being true. All Jews are kikes, which comes out as being false. Some Jews are kikes comes out also as being false. So part of the thesis we have of reflection, the linguistic reflection of the thesis of moral innocence is what we call semantic innocence. 
And that's the claim that these sentences are have the truth values that I just mentioned. That is, a sentence like no Jews or kikes comes out as being true, and all Jews or kikes comes out as being false uh, on this view. Now, I mean, one thing that comes up, and let me sort of emphasize here, is that I don't take the thesis of moral innocence to be a matter of our intuitions about the world. I take this to be a factual claim. So there's an issue which you know, we can discuss about what we call the versions of expressivism, identity expressivism, a little later. But I take a very strong view that we're trying to characterize a certain set of facts. And it's a fact that no Jews are kikes. That's a factual matter. It's not a matter that's open to opinion. So the only thing we're really concerned with is characterizing the thoughts of which those facts form the contents and the sentences that we use to express those particular thoughts. And just to clarify, this is a fact because of the underlying a priori moral principle that there is no person such that they're subject to these negative moral evaluations. That's correct. So suppose I were to say something nasty like, Emily is a kike. What I would be saying is, Emily is Jewish and therefore deserving of moral reprehension or something Mm -hmm. to that effect. Obviously, at least to us, that's wrong because why in the heck should anybody be subject to uh, moral reprehension just on the basis of whether or not they're Jewish? Well, Uh, if I could correct you, you didn't exactly say that. What you said was, Emily is Jewish and she ought to be subject to some kind of moral, negative moral evaluation. She may be Jewish, that may be true. And uh, moreover, you know, she may be morally reprehensible. Those both may be perfectly true. So I don't think that would be my thesis. My thesis would be that Emily is a kike is false because there are no such things as kikes, and hence she could not be one of them because... No one, including her, ought to be subject to uh, negative moral evaluation just because of being Jewish. So your, what you gave was not caught, was not, didn't give the causal relationship that's significant to the formulation. Does this hold across the board? I mean, is it never possible for someone to be deserving of negative moral evaluation on the basis of some group they belong to? Well, let me, let me be clear. This is, uh, I think, important. People are deserving of negative moral evaluation for all sorts of reasons, okay? So I want to distinguish between just because they're a member of a group and accepting the ideology or committing particular acts which are required to either become a member of the group or remain a member of the group. So I may join a group part of joining that is that I take on certain, I may join the Ku Klux Klan, for example. And in virtue of joining that, I take on morally reprehensible attitudes and beliefs. And I, in taking those on, I do believe, I shouldn't say I, someone, (laughs) that person should be and does deserve and ought to be negatively morally evaluated because of their particular beliefs and attitudes, but not just because they're a member of a group. It's like being a member of a set. There's nothing morally evaluable in being just whether you're a member or not. And being a member of a group is like that. So I think we have to be careful when we talk about words like pejoratives. They just apply because you're a member of the group, 
not because you share any attitudes or views or even properties uh, with other members of that group. So I think it's a fine distinction. But remember, it it's ought to be a target of negative moral emotion all because or just because of being a Jew, being an African-American, being whatever it might be. So I don't think the pejoratives are necessarily limited to particular types of groups, you know, ones that apply to religion or to ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, whatever you might think. Although I do think that's an interesting discussion to have. So my view would be that if you take this concept, X ought to be the target of negative moral evaluation all because of being a G, I think that can be for any kind of group we can imagine. But I do think one could discuss, and I think it's an interesting discussion to have, whether there would be natural classes that qualify as Gs, whether there's some kind of sortal constraint, the sorts of things that Gs can be. So there's natural classes. Now, it's not that simple to figure out what that might be, just to take a, an off-the-cuff example. You might think that it was something which was, in some sense, beyond your control. Being a member of this group was simply not something you could control. So being born in a certain religion or being born a certain gender or a certain uh, sexual orientation is not something which you may have any control over. It's just something which came along with the package deal. You know, it seems to me that a convert to Judaism is just as much a target of anti-Semitism as someone who was uh, born to the faith. So I don't think it's just a matter of whether it's choice to be a member of this group or not. There may be some kinds of way of characterizing some natural notion which demarcates an appropriate class of things, and this would be very interesting if it were. Uh, For sure, and I'm not disputing this, we get much more common occurrence of pejoratives over the ones which we commonly think of, ones that are applied to race, ethnicity, gender orientation, the ones we've been mentioning. For sure, those certainly are the common ones, and you know that might be not so much a conceptual fact or a linguistic fact, but a political and social fact about the, you know, the social role that the use of these words play in society and the relationships between cultural groups within societies. But that's a different topic than the one we're at least discussing at the moment. When I was reading your paper, I was struck by how different my intuitions were about what was happening with pejoratives. Mm -hmm. So my intuition was that a pejorative expression doesn't have a meaning at all. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when there's a sentence in which a pejorative expression occurs, what's really happening is that there is some sort of corresponding sentence that's maybe implicitly expressed in which the pejorative expression is is replaced by just the regular group term. Mm-hmm. And then there's this associated kind of punch in the face mm-hmm. that goes along with the original utterance. Mm-hmm. And I use punch in the face as the example because it it's the sort of thing that is outside of the space of meaning. It can't have an extension at all and seems to be more in line with why pejoratives exist in the first place, which Mm -hmm. is, I take it to be um, ways to assert power. Maybe if you could just comment on what you think the difference is between these two views and why why you go your way. Well, I think your question brings up a number of interesting points. 
One is, what's the evolution of a pejorative term? How does it get started? How does it enter into the common discourse in a society, and so on? Secondly, what is its use by speakers in their speech acts? What is their intention and reasons for doing it? A third point, I think, which was part of what you're saying, was whence its offensiveness? What makes it offensive? Why is it, I guess, you know, why is it the punch in the face? Why do you find them so offensive? Now, I think that, you know, one thing we're not, in a sense, trying to do here is to explain the offensiveness of pejorative terms. Meanings are not offensive. They're not good, bad, indifferent, offensive. The meaning of the word good is neither good nor bad. The meaning of an offensive word is neither offensive or non-offensive. It simply gives a certain meaning to that word, uh, whatever it may be. Now, your view, you said you didn't think these words had meanings. So does that mean you don't think that they are true or false? Right. My intuition was that they don't have a truth value. Rather than them having a null extension, they're the sorts of things that don't have an extension at all. Is no Jews or kikes true or false? You know, this is where I get pulled both ways. I, of course, want to say... Yes or no. Yeah. (laughs) But it it also, to to insert a pejorative expression into a very formal sentence like that seems like this isn't the work that pejorative expressions do in our language. Oh, wait, wait, hold on. I mean, I think we're confusing two different things. There's a linguistic question, psychological question sociological question, perhaps even a political question. They're all involved with these use of these words. There's some reason why I, as a speaker, knowing the meanings of these words, would use them. Okay? And it's all sorts of reasons why I would use them, what they reflect about my attitudes. I presume that people who go around using these uh, they say something about themselves, that they're racists or that they're anti-Semites or xenophobes or what have you. They may use them in contexts in which they feel they wish to provoke, uh, which they feel that they can exert power over others, and so on. But this is a part of what has to do with the speech act, not with necessarily with the meaning. So the only question here is what's the relationship between a speech act and the meaning of the sentence which is used or employed in that speech act. And here, there's a lot of questions which arise in the philosophy of language, ranging from, some people say, there's really no notion of meaning. You get some radical Wittgensteinians that say there's really no notion of meaning, that we just have to, you know, any notion of meaning sort of distorts any way we can understand the way speech acts work as an aspect of interpersonal behaviors. Others, which would be more my view, is that there is a notion of literal meaning, and our understanding of what a speech act is is based on that. So what we're trying to do here is to understand a certain conceptual relationship, a conceptual relationship between two words of a language, the word Jew and the word kike, and a pairs of that, and see what their conceptual relationship is. And that we take to be a certain kind of linguistic question, a question about words and the concepts they express. That should, and I think it does, uh, provide a foundation of understanding certain things that are going on when people use these words in in making speech acts. So I would presume that given what I take these words to mean, that someone knowing these words and made made assertions containing them uh, would be people who, 
in some sense, lack a certain kind of linguistic knowledge or understanding. That is, that they would, grasping the meaning, they would not grasp that these things have no extensions. They think there are such things as kikes, and these people we generally call anti-Semites. People who think that there are such things as niggers we call racists, and they are. So I think that it's the case of what's the conceptual relationships, what's the claim about what these words mean, how do they interact with our speech acts, There's two ways of understanding the conceptual relations of these words. One is they're different, and the other is they're the same. I guess it's a third, which is that words like hike have no conceptual structure whatsoever. And then if you take that view, then your account of what the way these words work has nothing to do with any kind of linguistic analysis or conceptual analysis. It has to do with going to be taken up completely with what you think their role is, they will be defined by their role and how you understand a nexus of social relations into which groups of people participate. I don't think that really is going to be illuminating because I think there's this fact that this doesn't explain is that it doesn't actually answer the existential question. Are there kikes? It might be offensive. It might be unpleasant. It might show all sorts of kinds of attitudes towards people to call them by a pejorative, but are you saying they are such a thing? And if you're saying they're such a thing, are you saying, if I say you're a kike, am I saying anything different than you're a Jew about you? And in my view, if you, you, know, you are saying something different, I think everyone agrees, but I think there's an underlying kind of pathology that's involved in using such words because you're applying it when there are no such things. So... If, heaven forbid, I happen to say Emily's a kike, what I'm saying is that Emily is Jewish and, in virtue of being Jewish, is deserving of people taking a negative, evaluative attitude towards her. And in thinking that anybody could fall under that category, this category of kike, I'm committing this kind of fallacy whereby I think that mere membership in a group and nothing more is sufficient to entitle people to general negative moral evaluation on the part of other people. Now, the statement, Emily's a kike, on your view, isn't in itself morally reprehensible. Maybe it has further implications in a particular conversational context that may be objectionable. What you want to capture is the fact that it's false. Mm -hmm. Emily isn't a kike because nobody is a kike. Nobody even can be a kike. That's right. Right. But if I were to say that, it would be saying something, I mean, one thing it would say is something about me and my attitudes because it would be based on a certain false belief that there are such things, presumably, and would be expressing that I am an anti-Semite. And to be fair, I may say it not, you know, be reflective of that, but I also might be because I'm trying to offend you or be offensive about you or to show that, you know, I'm of some superior social group than you. Uh, all those things. I mean, we have lots and lots of reasons for saying all sorts of things. And all the reasons I've just given, for example, to offend you or to show that I'm of a, a superior social group, I could say using almost anything in the language in an appropriate context. It doesn't have to be pejorative terms. All those functions could be done by lots of other speech acts. Now, are pejorative terms very nicely suited for these purposes? You bet they are. And the question is kind of why. And that's one of the reasons why we want to say because they mean what they mean. That's why they're particularly suited. But the speech acts that we're talking about are things that can be done with all sorts of language, you know, which we don't have any particular kinds of associations that we make with these kinds of words. These words are specially loaded up. 
and they're presumably loaded up because of their meaning, not simply because of the way that people go about employing them. Every, every sort of speech act that a speaker may use a pejorative term for can be done without the use of that word, and not even by just adding sneering tones and so on. So I think that the question does you know, remain a question of what we take the meaning to be. And I think most views of pejoratives take that view. I mean, there are some that don't, but I think most do. And a lot of the discussion that goes on is a discussion about where we locate that meaning and how it relates to truth conditional content. So I'm very interested in the transition of truth value from, Mm. for example, there are no queers to look at all the queers or Mm. I'm queer. Mm -hmm. On your view, what is happening to account for that transition when a word gets reclaimed? Yeah, well... The reclaiming or appropriation of words by targeted groups uh, is you know, something we can seek to describe in a number of different ways. We can say, well, what's going on linguistically? We can say what's going on uh, sociologically, politically, and so on. I think that the main interest in this phenomenon is not particularly linguistic. I think the main interest is political. It's by members of the targeted group using this as their self-moniker The attempt is to diffuse it to have a political effect and to take it from the category of a pejorative to the category of a non-pejorative. We might want to have, and we propose a particular semantics, which will allow you to sort of see what the semantic change is. But the dynamics, the social dynamics of that change, you know, is one which is a very complicated set of political activities, education, social, you know, engineering, all sorts of things. We may set, we want people to stop doing things as a, mem- as a societal norm. Then we may put into place sanctions. So, for example, we have very strong sanctions against the use of hate speech, against this kind of speech, because, you know, we're trying to find methods. That's a very blunt method, it seems to me, to change attitudes, which is what we're trying to do. The ultimate goal is to eradicate from the fiber of society and our cultures racism, anti-Semitism, and all these hate-based attitudes. That's our goal. And so uh, part of what is a somewhat effective strategy for trying to eradicate this is appropriation of pejorative terms to make them non-pejorative. But how that actually happens is a question for sociologists and social psychologists, not for philosophers. It's a question about how you change by social political action people's attitudes. I think the case of gay and queer have been you know, paradigm examples in which that's been done very effectively. Most pejoratives, when they change from being non-pejoratives, just kind of drift out of usage. You know, ones like limey, for example, or frog, or you know, the ones that were all popular during you know, the middle of the 20th century, particularly for you know, uh, national groups. And those just become rather archaic and quaint. Uh, in fact, you had to be told, you know, limey was a bad word for British people. You know, who knew? Let me be clear, you know, again, because going back to the point you made earlier, Emily, uh, <laughs> that these words, you know, there's a great gradation in their charge. And those are just reflective of how different kinds of histories of societies and nations and people and cultural issues. You know, we take nigger to be really just absolutely super powerful. We take hype to be pretty powerful. We take WAP, eh, limey, not really very much at all. 
from our point of view, I don't have any particular explanation of that from the point of view of the analysis of what these words mean. Okay, all I'm saying is there's a particular semantic space these words occupy. I think it's an anthropological question. It's a question of social psychology. It's a question of personal psychology and so on, why there is this gradation. I don't think that's a particularly philosophical question. Can you just go into a bit more detail on what's happening at the linguistic level, though, Mm -hmm. when I say I'm queer and I say that as a positive, affirming part of my identity? I just say the same thing if I said, you know, I'm a man or I'm a Jew. Right, so... I mean, let me, let me, I mean, people understand, are very reflective about language. They have a very sensitive grasp of word meaning, of how words change their meaning, of the force of words, of, you know, all sorts of things. We are very sensitive about the nature of our surroundings and the nature of our behaviors in those surroundings. So, sure, if I say I am queer, I may be doing that evoking what I take to be a common understanding of the fact this word has recently changed from being pejorative to non-pejorative. And that might be part of the underlying you know, overall content in the broad sense that I'm trying to get across when I make my utterance. So other words which never had any pejorative association may not carry that. But from taking that queer is not a pejorative term, when I say I am queer, I'm not saying anything different than I'm a Jew or I'm a man or anything like that. But given the context this is newly moved from being pejorative to non-pejorative, then it carries a certain understanding of that. We know that. That's one of the things part of we know, you know, goes along with being a speaker of a language. Being a speaker of a language, we have a very, we have a lot of that kind of metalinguistic knowledge about our language, and it shades what we say. So let's go back to your mom's remark from when you were a kid. There are no kikes. One thing you might think about that sentence is you're kind of not using the word kike in its standard usage. Rather, it's more like what you're doing is putting like air quotes around it. There are no kikes, so to speak, as in people who would be called kikes or something like that. There are examples of this usage, for example, in James Baldwin, where you know he italicizes the relevant word as, as though to suggest that's being put in quotes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's what's happening here, or do you think this really is just the standard usage of the word kike? Oh, I, yeah, I think it's the standard usage. Um, certainly my mother was not telling me that there are no people who are called kikes, because she wasn't saying something false. She knew perfectly well there are people called kikes. Was she telling me there are no people who ought to be called kike? No, I don't think she was telling me that, because that would imply, that again, that there are kikes. I think she was quite insistent. There are no such things as kikes. So I don't think it's a case of metalinguistic, what's known as metalinguistic negation, and that, that I think is, well, we can talk about that in some more detail if you like, but I think it's just the standard use of the word. I think she was making a very explicit metaphysical claim. There are no such things. So do you think that precisely analyzing the meaning of these expressions in the way that philosophers of language and natural language semanticists do can help us to combat racism or to identify the causes of racism or any of those things? I mean, I think the answer is yes. To my mind, racism in all its form are used not just for race-based hatred, but you know, all the other religion, ethnicity, and so on. These are pathological states. In the way we're looking at things, we have a certain understanding of at least one aspect of that pathology, that it's based on a false belief. It's the false belief 
that there are such things as kikes and niggers and so on. And given that that's a false belief, we have a certain way of understanding those people who use such words, who have such false beliefs, and a certain understanding of what the sort of pathology is. Part of the way we want to combat racism is therapeutically. We need to change people's attitudes. And part of that is trying to understand therapeutically what do you do with people who have racist views. So if we take it to be the case that they hold false beliefs about the nature of the world, we can try and approach therapeutically why that is. I think that it goes beyond. I mean, I think that clearly there are lots of legal issues that are going to be based on what we think these words mean. There's issues with, obviously, philosophy of law within the, the law itself, all sorts of issues about First Amendment rights, whether it's protected speech or not. There's all sorts of issues, I think, that tie in. And I think, actually, one of the things why pejoratives are so interesting is because you start with particular dispute within, narrowly, within the philosophy of language about, you know, literal meaning versus speech act meaning. And you go from there to issues about, well, what kind of attitude, philosophy of mind, what kind of attitudes are reflected by people who use these words uh, to issues in philosophy of law and into the law itself, and hence issues that actually affect people in their everyday lives. So I think that, yeah, I think this is one case where sort of philosophy really does what you might think philosophy ought to do. Uh, We can turn technical disputes and claims within philosophy that turn on very arcane internal to philosophy issues that really you can see a clear road to how they impact uh, you know, people in their everyday lives and how they interact with people's attitudes. So yeah, I think this is one of these great areas of philosophy and that is getting a lot of attention now I think is great because I think we are getting a great articulation of this. And I think it is something that's helped, I mean, if you take you know, some of Chris Hom's work I mean, it's a novel twist on issues about what we call external, semantic externalism in uh, philosophy. So it's based on a particular claim about the meanings of, re- you know, about reference and the meanings of words. And that leads to, you know, other consequences throughout philosophy, right through the whole spectrum of things I've been mentioning. So, yeah, I think it's a great topic because of that. And it is one which I think obviously does have a lot of consequences, you know, inside philosophy and, you know, outside philosophy in the way that philosophy should be significant in life. Thank you so much for coming to talk with us about this. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. It's really been a pleasure being here. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.